This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 22nd, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about reverse engineering China's censorship machinery. And Magna Sachdev is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Inside China, tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of people work to keep certain content off the internet. But nobody truly understands what rules these censors are following. In an attempt to better understand the unwritten policies of internet policing, Gary King and colleagues posted potentially inflammatory comments on the top 100 social media sites in the country. I spoke with him about what censorship of these posts revealed and what he learned from setting up his own social media site in China. Chinese censorship of social media is the largest effort to suppress human expression of any country in the history of the world. But what's the purpose of the system? What types of social media posts get censored? We used observational, experimental, and participatory studies to reverse engineer what the Chinese government was after. We found that this really huge organization, this censorship organization, which is obviously designed to suppress information, is like an elephant tiptoeing around. It leaves really big footprints. And we can therefore use information about these footprints when we have enough data to see exactly what the government is after. What are the basic mechanisms that the Chinese government is using to censor content on the web? The Chinese government uses very large numbers of people, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of censors, to read social media posts and decide what's going to be there. Social media in China is as vibrant as in most other countries, but they have this extra layer where the government decides to take things down after they appear on the web. In addition, they also use keyword filtering in which they have a list of keywords that they don't really share with anybody. And if you use one of them in your social media post, they'll automatically filter that into a sort of purgatory. And then the human censors, instead of reading them and deciding which ones to take down, they read them and decide which ones to put up. At the end of the day, they have human beings doing the filtering, but they do have some computer assistance along the way. 
In your experiment, you broke the method into three different pieces. Can you describe how you broke things down? Sure. We had an observational study, experimental study, and a participatory study. For the observational study, we downloaded millions of social media posts in China before the Chinese government could read and censor them and decide which ones were going to be taken down. We then revisited them from a network of computers all over the world in order to see which ones remained up. And then we had our variable that we wanted to study, which ones were up, which ones were down, and we could reverse engineer what they were after. That was our observational study. We then did an experiment where we randomly assigned different types of social media posts to different social media sites, and then we used the same network of computers from around the world to see which ones remained up. The second method enabled us to look at the automated methods of keyword filtering because they would take things down instantly and we wouldn't be able to just observe what was on the web. For our third study, we conducted what we call a participatory study, which we literally created a social media site in China ourselves. We didn't let the Chinese people post on it because then we'd have to be in the position of being censors. But we could then see what the machinery was, how they actually did their censorship. In the experiment, the, the second type, you actually posted content to many social media websites in order to track what was censored in advance, what made it up, what was taken down later. What kind of posts did your team create for this experiment? The main hypothesis that we were studying was whether the Chinese government was stopping criticism of the state or whether they were stopping collective action. In the past, people had thought this was all one thing, that you would stop collective action or criticism or protest, any type of negative comment about a leader of the government or their policies. We found that this was just completely wrong. When we tried to use that as the lens through which we were looking at the data, it just didn't make any sense. So we eventually separated out the two goals, that is stopping criticism and stopping collective action. Stopping saying things about the leaders and their policies versus saying that the people should do something about it. And we found that the Chinese government has no problem with criticism. You can say the most vile things about the leaders and their policies, but if you say also that people should go protest, they'll censor you. In fact, if you say that the leaders of this town are doing such a great job, what we should really do is go have a rally in their favor, that will also be censored. So when we did our experiment, we randomly assigned posts to different types of things that they would say, posts that were critical of the government, posts that were supportive of the government, posts that were in favor of collective action, some type of protest or rally, and posts that were opposed to collective action. And so when you looked at how many of those made it through the censorship, you saw a big difference between the ones criticizing the government and the ones calling for action? Yeah, we found that whether you criticized the government or you were supportive of the government, it didn't change the probability of censorship pretty much at all. However, if you started to call for the movement of people, whether the movement of people was in favor of the government or to protest government activity, they would stop you. You can say whatever you want about the Chinese leaders. You can say the nastiest things. I mean, things like the leaders of this town have mistresses, they're stealing money, here's how much money they're stealing. But if you say, therefore, we should go protest, that will be stopped. When you built your own social media site in China, what were you able to learn from that process? What we were able to learn from building our own social media site was exactly how they did it, exactly how they censored, exactly what the procedures were and the settings on their computer programs. We saw all the internal workings. What a lot of people had done, including us, 
was talk to individual censors. There may be 100,000 or more of these people. They're probably not supposed to talk to you. We don't really know. But even if they do, what kind of information are you going to get from them if you ask their questions? The incentives of the sources are not aligned with the incentives of the researchers. So we needed to change their incentives. So one way to change their incentives was to set up our own social media site. And then we could reverse engineer the software and the hardware and the procedures, and we had the documentation of the machine that we were trying to reverse engineer. But then in addition, if we had questions, we literally could just call customer service. And the people at customer service, it was their job to help us. And you know what? They actually did a good job. You actually had um, the option of, you know, different severities of censorship filters for this, right? Yes, that's right. There were all types of sets of keywords. You could censor any post that used a list of keywords that you chose. You could censor different people. You could censor different groups. You could censor people if they posted in certain topic areas. There's an enormous array of possibilities. The government allows different social media sites to set things up in any way they want, as long as they accomplish the same goal. Were you able to obtain some kind of general guidance from the government or from these customer service representatives on what you were supposed to target? We quite literally asked them, so how do we stay out of trouble with the government? And they gave us pretty good indication of how many censors we needed to hire and roughly what they would need to do. I'm not sure, however, that anybody really understood or could express the rules that we eventually uncovered. If you ask them, well, what's the rule? Can you criticize the government? Can you support collective action? They'll have suggestions and they'll have guidelines and they'll have rules, but they're all a little vague. We needed to also do the empirical study to really figure out what was going on. Now that you know that there's this bias towards censoring calls for collective action, what does that tell you about the motivations of the government in doing the censorship, that that's their big concern? I think the big concern of the leaders of China is pretty much the same concern of the leaders of most countries, which is to stay in power. They have a very different setup there, of course. And so how is it that they stay in power? Well, they're probably not particularly afraid of the leaders of of the United States or any other country. They're most afraid probably of their own people. And how is it that they wind up staying in power? Well, if the people are critical of some local leader, it's probably very important for them to know about that and to know about it soon. And criticism on social media is one way of them finding out. On the other hand, if there's people that are protesting, if there are people in China that are not in the government that have the ability to move other people, to create crowds, that is a source of danger for the government. And everything we found is consistent with them totally understanding that. What can you do with this information? Is this helpful to people who want to do collective action but maybe should keep it off social media? Or is this more about just understanding better what censorship can accomplish? You know, we we as researchers don't have the goal of changing things. We want to understand what it is they're doing, figuring out how governments of all types manage to stay in power, how governments of all types try to control information, and how this extraordinary government, with this extraordinary effort to suppress, selectively suppress human expression, operates, may actually be very important for the future of democracies and how other governments are set up and how people react to them, and perhaps eventually how the people of of a country like China might treat this information and use it going forward. Gary, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Gary King and colleagues explore censorship in China in this week's issue. 
Now we have Magna Sachdev. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on a black hole that's not too big and not too small. For a long time, astronomers could only find evidence for tiny black holes and massive ones. But there didn't seem to be any mid-sized black holes out there. So, Magna, how big is big and how small is small when we're talking about black holes? The big black holes are really, really big. So we're talking about anywhere from hundreds to thousands to billions the size of our sun. And for the little guys, they are not much bigger than the sun. They can go up to about 10 times the size of the sun. Mm-hmm. Now we're, we're talking about some kind of in-between size. How did the researchers go about looking for intermediate black holes? It's actually pretty hard. What they did is they started looking for these rare objects that were made up of a black hole and another star. And the black hole basically eats the star and it sends out these x-rays. And so the x-ray signal that these little objects called uh, ULXs were sending out seemed to be too bright to be sent out by a really little black hole. But that still wasn't good enough evidence that it was just right or medium-sized. So stellar black holes are a little strange or interesting. Astronomers notice that the X-ray emissions pulse out the same way like a drum beat, so sort of a 3-2 rhythm. Astronomers found out that the frequency of these beats is inversely proportional to their size. Astronomers measured the X-ray emissions coming from this particular object, and it seemed to fit a medium-sized black hole. How medium is a medium? This guy is about 400 times the size of the sun. Now that they found one intermediate black hole out there, does that still leave some unanswered questions? Even though there are two findings that suggest that this guy really is just right and he's medium-sized, they're not 100% convinced. So some astronomers say this isn't the final proof of the existence of of medium-sized black holes. They say that astronomers need to look at this weird drumbeat phenomenon a little more closely. But for now, they say they're pretty sure. Next up, we have a story on pack behavior in wolves and dogs. What exactly did we do to dogs when we domesticated them? Did we join the pack ourselves and become the alphas? Or did we make our pet wolves more cooperative than their wild brethren? A few recent studies seem to suggest that wolves are actually more cooperative than dogs. So, Megna, can you take us through the study setup? Where did the researchers find these dogs and wolves? These researchers actually hand-raised four packs of both wolves and dogs from the time they were about 10 days old at a wildlife center in Austria. So the wolves were pretty used to to human contact. But they also had formed pack-like bonds. They had, exactly. So the packs were about from two to about six members, and they were pretty close packs. In some of the research trials here, the animals were paired with a pack mate and then presented with food to share. How did that go down with wolves versus dog packs? Well, the wolves were very nice. And so the way they paired them was they took a dominant member in the pack with a very low low-ranking pack member. And when it was the wolves, they were great and everybody got a chance to eat. There might have been a little bit of aggression, but other than that, you know, everyone shared. And when it was the dogs, oh boy, it was pretty much just the dominant member who got their dinner. The lower-ranking pack member, the poor, poor guy, didn't get anything to eat. There was no sharing. Okay. 
In a second study by a different group, the researchers tested ingenuity in dogs and wolves, or problem-solving, if you will. How did the animals compare in that scenario? They gave 20 dogs a sealed packet of summer sausage, and none of the dogs could open the packet. But most of the wolves, about 8 out of 10 of them, managed to do it. And what's funny is that the puppies, dog puppies, were able to open the packages. But dogs eventually did if they were given a command. Exactly. So once once their owners told them to do it, they could do it. So it kind of suggests that dogs are basically waiting to be told what to do. These studies seem to suggest that dogs did not get more cooperative, but rather more servile and obedient as they were domesticated. Is this information useful for our better understanding our pets or training them? Researchers say that this isn't what dog trainers want to hear, but dogs definitely do respond to dominance, and they're pretty much just waiting to find out what we want them to do. Lastly, we have a story on the sources of elephant decline. It turns out to be really difficult to quantify elephants in Africa. How many are there, how many die from natural causes, and how many are getting poached? Now, researchers have come up with some new numbers that seem to suggest big losses. Okay, Magna, what makes it so hard to count these elephants? Many areas in Africa haven't actually been surveyed recently, and the methods of surveying them are imprecise. So in areas like these very well-protected parks, we pretty much know what's going on. But there are forests and areas in Central Africa where we really just have no idea what's going on at all. And until recently, we thought that the birth rate might be outpacing the death rate, but that turns out not to be the case. What new tactics did the researchers use here? There's this existing framework of surveying elephant populations called Mike. And so what researchers did is they calibrated the data from this framework with their detailed research on elephant populations in Samburu National Park in Kenya. And then they extrapolated the data across 306 elephant populations in Africa. And what they found is that between 35,000 and 47,000 elephants were poached in 2011. Now, that's a 3% loss to the total number of elephants on the continent. These numbers are from 2011. It's 2014. Is there any indication that we're seeing a change and what kind of efforts are being undertaken? The rate of poaching across Africa has actually declined last year, but it's still unsustainable for the elephant population on the continent. Researchers say that investments made fighting poachers and trying to reduce the demand in China for ivory is starting to help. But they do say that even though this is helping, it's not really close to what we need. Well, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, check out our site to read about why castrated water fleas get so big, why climbing snakes hold on really, really tight when they climb. And on Science Insider, which is our policy news blog, you can find out why China pulled the plug on genetically modified corn and rice, as well as continuing coverage of the Ebola outbreak. And so you can find all of this and more at news.sciencemag.org. Thanks, Magna. Thank you, Sarah. Magna Sachdev is a reporter and social media manager for Science News. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site, 
The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>